This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Patreon. The COVID-19 crisis is making it clear that the creative system is broken, serving advertisers over artists. On Patreon, creators can build a more sustainable income source, and their fans get access to exclusive community and premium content through monthly memberships. If you're a creator or simply love one, check out Patreon.com now and change the way art is valued. From the newsroom of the Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, May 21st. Today, the story behind retail bankruptcies, a groundbreaking launch for SpaceX, and finding community during a different kind of Ramadan. JCPenney is the fourth major retailer we've seen so far this month file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. And that basically means they've run out of cash, they need help to stay afloat. And so they're using this as an opportunity to move some of their debt around, close some stores that aren't working out for them, and really reassess their business. Abba Bacharai covers retail for The Post. And over the last month... So the first was J. Crew. She's watched as one. Then we had Neiman Marcus. After another... Stage Stores, which owns Gordman's and a number of other department stores. Of these major retail stores have filed for bankruptcy. You know, this was not a surprise. None of these bankruptcy filings were surprises. These were companies that have been struggling for many years, but the pandemic really put them over the edge. All of them had to shut down stores for weeks at a time. They furloughed almost all of their employees. So that put them in a position where they very quickly ran out of cash. And so what you're saying is that these stores are not necessarily closing completely. They're just going to see some dramatic changes. And this is sort of their last ditch effort to try to stay afloat. Exactly. JCPenney has said, for example, that it's going to close about 240 stores, which is about 30 percent of its overall footprint in the next year or so. But for the most part, these brands are not disappearing, at least not yet. So the fact that these stores are filing for bankruptcy, what does that say about the state of the retail industry right now? It's been a huge, unprecedented drop-off in retail sales that we've never seen before. We thought March was bad when retail sales fell about 8%, and then April blew that out of the water with a 16% drop. People stopped spending in just about every category, including clothing, shoes, furniture, just about everything other than groceries and online purchases. We're seeing a widening gap across the industry, and this was something that we've been seeing since the last recession over a decade ago. The strongest retailers are doing very well, the Walmarts, Targets, and Amazons of the world, and the rest are falling off. And what is the difference between those stores that are doing well and those stores that very much are not? The stores that are doing well generally, you know, did not have a lot of debt. They were not bought up by private equity firms and they were able to invest in websites, e-commerce operations, a whole bunch of initiatives to stay fresh and modern and keep their customers coming back. The stores that have filed for bankruptcy and are struggling, like J. Crew or Neiman Marcus, have billions of dollars in debt. So, you know, even though they were making pretty good sales for the most part and sometimes, you know, would have turned a profit, they were putting all of that money back towards debt payments and interest payments, which really hurt them in the long haul. But then is there a difference in terms of like what they're providing and what people go to a Walmart or a Home Depot or a Target for versus what they go to like JCPenney for? 
Absolutely. And I think what we're seeing over and over again is that it's apparel stores and department stores that are struggling the most. A lot of them are based in the mall and have relied on broader mall traffic to boost their sales for a long time. And we all know that malls have been on a downward trajectory for years. So they were already struggling with that. And on top of that, they sell a lot of the same things that every other competitor sells. So for some of these retailers that are finding themselves somewhere in the middle, that they're not filing for bankruptcy yet, but they have been suffering during coronavirus, do we have a sense of how they will be faring once things start to reopen again? It's really difficult to tell. And that's something that we keep hearing from analysts is that there are so many unknowns right now. We don't know how long these shutdowns are going to last or, you know, whether there's going to be a second round of the virus, whether stores are going to have to close down again. And even if stores do reopen for the long haul, there's the question of whether consumers will come back. So many Americans have lost their jobs. Millions more are worried that they might lose their jobs. And they've really cut back on spending for just about anything other than food and necessities. Are we expecting that after this initial round of stores that are filing for bankruptcy that we might see more and another wave of retailers who decide that they have kind of reached the end game? It's definitely likely. And as the pandemic wears on and the shutdowns go on for longer and longer, we're going to see more companies running out of cash. So we will see more retailers starting to file for bankruptcy. I feel like the narrative coming out of this is going to be that coronavirus killed J. Crew or coronavirus killed JCPenney. Do you feel like that's accurate? That's not fair. You know, coronavirus certainly helped hasten its demise, but it wasn't the only factor and it wasn't even the main factor. It just kind of sped up a death that was already happening. All right, we're recording. Recording? Okay. So, Damien Paletta, economics editor at The Post. We just spoke with Abba about this series of big retail stores that are filing for bankruptcy. JCPenney, Neiman Marcus, J. Crew, And it brought me back to this conversation that you and I had more than a year ago, on April 8th, 2019. And I want to play you a clip from that conversation. A leveraged loan is a loan made to a company that is over leveraged. And by over leveraged, it means the company has way more debt than it brings in through income. Do you have examples of what those companies? We're talking about companies, name brands you know, J. Crew. There's a lot of companies that you shop at or pass by every day that have these loans? Absolutely. So you were raising the red flag a year ago that J. Crew was relying on these highly risky loans. You'd also brought up Neiman Marcus. And here we are. Now they're filing for bankruptcy. What is your reaction to that? My, my reaction to that is I'm sad that I was right. I mean, this was the big fear that when times were good, if companies were loaded up on debt, when times got bad, there would be nowhere for them to go. It's, it's almost like running up your credit card bill when you have a job and, you know, everything seems fine in the economy. Then when things go bad, you have all this credit card debt and there's just no way to pay it. And so now we have all these companies, like you mentioned, lots of name brands. You know, the news today is Pier One's going to be closing its stores. It's been around for a long time. A lot of these name brand stores 
are going out of business and are not going to be around or they're filing for bankruptcy and they're going to have to dramatically restructure. So when we talk about Chapter 11 bankruptcy, does that mean that some of their debt is just never going to be paid off and the people who they owe money to are never going to see that money? That's right. I mean, you know, bankruptcy can be a good thing for companies. Like, let's say a company owes a million dollars and there's just no way they can pay it, right? So they could just close and no one can get anything. Or they can file for bankruptcy and say, okay, listen, we've got like half a million dollars. We don't have a million. We can pay some of the stuff we owe, but not all of it. And then there's kind of this line that forms of people who were first in line for the payments and last in line. And right now we're in the part where it's hard to tell exactly how ugly this is going to be because right now there's kind of this, you know, big cloud of dust around all the collapsing companies. We have to find out who's kind of on the wrong end of those bankruptcies and we'll find out very soon. So in terms of the circumstances that led up to what is happening now, I think a lot of people will look at what happened with JCPenney and with J. Crew and say they were killed by coronavirus. But it seems like there were these longer term circumstances that really led up to that. So when it comes to these leveraged loans that you've been talking about for more than a year, tell me more about like how those loans actually work and how they're playing out for these companies now. Sure. So a leveraged loan would be a loan that a company would take out when they really couldn't get a normal loan. In other words, they were already so kind of maxed out on debt that they had to get a special kind of loan that's considered much higher risk. So I guess you could argue that if they hadn't taken out these loans, they would have gone out of business a long time ago. And maybe these loans kind of helped them bridge you know, into this kind of environment so that it took a dramatic downturn like the coronavirus to finish them off. But you could also argue that these leveraged loans, some of them that were made with such high risk, created this kind of glut of really over-leveraged, highly indebted companies so that now you have all these companies kind of toppling at once. And that can make a downturn even worse because you have so many workers who are being kind of thrown out of the workforce simultaneously, as opposed to if they had kind of sorted this out and solved it. You know, when you and I were talking about this a year ago, it might not be as messy and ugly as it is now. All going down at once. So one of the things that you've explained to me when we talked about this in the past is that these leveraged loans for corporations sort of work like how subprime loans worked in the lead up to the recession, that they were loans that were repackaged by banks and then resold. So in the case of what's happening with some of these major retailers, if these were risky loans that were resold to someone else, and now it seems like there is a chance that companies like J. Crew and JCPenney are going to have to default on these loans. Who who owns that debt and what are the implications of that? It's a great question. And unfortunately, it's a question that we don't really know the answer to at this point. I do remember during the financial crisis in 2008, we heard so many people say, oh, you know, I don't hold the debt. I'm not exposed to subprime loans. They're just a small you know, part of the economy, just some random investors that are involved. And then, of course, we find out that it was much more widespread. They were packaged into all these different products that so many people held that you and I held we didn't even know about. So I would just kind of give people caution that they they might not have ever heard of leveraged loans. They might not think that they had any exposure to, you know, the corporate decisions of J. Crew or Pier One or JCPenney. But lo and behold, all these companies are kind of interconnected in financial markets in different ways. And quite frankly, a lot of these products, these risky 
securities are held in other countries. And so what could seem like a, a small insignificant thing, like maybe you haven't stepped foot in JCPenney in 20 years, or you haven't bought furniture at J. Crew since, you know, like the desk I bought right after college. You mean you mean Pier One? Pier One, I'm sorry, yeah. My <laughs> maybe Pier you one can desk buy furniture at J. Crew. I don't I haven't checked back in the last few years. Maybe they expanded right. their offerings. My favorite pair of jeans was from J. Crew. But like maybe you haven't shopped there in a long time. You think you have no exposure you'd be surprised. And unfortunately, you won't be pleasantly surprised. You'll be really unpleasantly surprised because a lot of us who you know make investments in mutual funds or things like that, we have no idea all the things that are connected. And it takes a really dramatic, scary moment like this to make us learn. And oftentimes, by the time we learn, it's too late to do anything about it. So then how will this play out in the future? Like, what are the chances that what we're seeing with these few retailers that are that are filing for bankruptcy now, that that will actually have major implications, even if, you know, we start to come out of the pandemic and businesses start to reopen? I have a story for you. So there was an election year in 2008. Okay, it was a big election. And in March of 2008, there was a really scary financial event. Bear Stearns collapsed. The government didn't save it. It was a huge mess. You know, financial markets shuddered and everyone panicked. Treasury, Federal Reserve, everyone was hauled up to Capitol Hill to talk about what happened. And by May, things seemed like they had stabilized, okay? By, you know, August and September of 2008, the economy was in free fall. So I think those of us who kind of lived through that horror show know that just because things are looking better now and just because people might be looking forward and not backward, you know, we shouldn't get too complacent. And so that's why things like leverage loans and other financial products that had kind of gotten by just on, you know, economic froth for several years. Those are the kinds of things, the little sticks of dynamite in the economy that can explode later. And they can explode when we're kind of least prepared to defend ourselves. You know, when when the stock market's up, but there's 30% unemployment or GDP's crashing or people are, you know, overdrawn on their credit cards or they can't pay their rent. That's when we're kind of least able to defend ourselves as an economy. And so like we learned in 2008, when it took like six months from Bear Stearns for the economy to really collapse, you know, we're just a couple months after the what we thought was the worst part of this. And so I would just say kind of hold on tight. The worst could be ahead. Damien Paletta is the economics editor for The Post. Abba Batarai covers retail. Next week could be the beginning of the next chapter in space travel for the U.S. Yeah, I mean, this is a big moment for NASA. It's the first launch of NASA astronauts from United States soil, from the, you know, storied, venerable Florida space coast since 2011. So almost a decade. Chris Davenport covers the space industry for The Post. Since the NASA shuttle program ended in 2011, the U.S. has relied on Russia to send its astronauts into space. So the significance here is that NASA astronauts are going back to space from U.S. soil, and that's sort of the the big deal. 
So when is this launch going to happen? Well, it's scheduled for May 27th. I always tell people, though, that, you know, when it comes to spaceflight, and particularly human spaceflight, the launches can scrub. They can be delayed. It can be the weather or they can, you know, just have a, a faulty mechanical problem, a sensor that's off. And you would have to imagine that for this flight, given how high profile it is, given the fact that there are going to be two astronauts on top of the rocket, they're going to proceed with extreme caution. These astronauts are going to the International Space Station. And what's even more historic about this launch is that it's the first time ever that a commercial company will be flying people into orbit. Elon Musk's company, SpaceX. Yeah, I mean, this is the biggest test that SpaceX has ever had. I mean, it was founded in 2002 by Elon Musk. And even he thought at the time, you know, early on, that it maybe had a 1 in 10 chance of succeeding. And I, I think within the next several years, these entrepreneurial efforts will actually be what drives space exploration. But ultimately, the company did. Today's announcement um, sets the stage for what promises to be the most ambitious and exciting chapter in the history of NASA and human spaceflight. Uh, SpaceX, along with Boeing, won the contracts in 2014 from NASA to build spacecraft capable of flying astronauts to the International Space Station. And for the last six years, these two companies, SpaceX and Boeing, have been in a fierce competition to see who could build their ship first. SpaceX developed a ship that they called the Dragon. Boeing's ship is called the Starliner. At the time, everyone thought that Boeing was going to go first. They would be victorious. They would be the company that restored orbital human spaceflight from U.S. soil because they're the big behemoth. They've been around for decades. They had been a partner of NASA's, you know, since the dawn of the space age. And SpaceX is more of this sort of relatively young, spunky up-and-comer. But, you know, along the way, a funny thing happened. Both SpaceX and Boeing were delayed. I mean, NASA was originally hoping that the first flights with humans would happen in 2017. Both programs were delayed. But more recently, SpaceX has had a fair amount of success. It flew the Dragon spacecraft, designed to fly astronauts to the space station last year in a successful test flight without humans. When Boeing tried to do that, at the end of last year, they stumbled and stumbled badly and uh, now are going to have to redo that entire test flight, setting the stage really for SpaceX to have this first flight. So who are the astronauts who are going to be on this flight? So for this mission, you know, NASA went in and really picked the best of the best from their astronaut corps. They picked Doug Hurley and Bob Behnken, who are, you know, kind of right out of central casting. Just start, say your name and uh, introduce yourself. Uh, Doug Hurley, astronaut, uh, one of the commercial crew cadre. My name is Bob Behnken. I'm a NASA astronaut, also an Air Force officer. They're both uh, from the military. I mean, the short story is uh, I was a fighter pilot and a test pilot in the Marine Corps. They're both veterans of NASA. They've been to space before. I, I did spend about three years as uh, NASA's uh, chief astronaut. You know, but it's interesting. They were in the same astronaut class in the year 2000. So they go back a ways. They've known each other for 20 years. But they also are both married to other astronauts hmm. who are in that same astronaut class. Well, my wife's an astronaut. So uh, I think one of the great things about being married to an astronaut is is she understands the risks uh, every bit as much as I do. And we've both been there. And frankly, the hardest thing about being married to an astronaut is sitting there watching them go fly because you know what can happen potentially. 
So how risky is this flight going to be? Man, it is going to be, it's just so risky. Anytime you put humans on top of a rocket that's filled to the brim with highly volatile propellants, it's just, it's so dangerous. Nine, eight, seven. You know, a rocket launch, it's basically like a bomb going off. You just light all of this fuel, but what you're doing is just controlling the blast of the bomb so that it goes in one direction and it's very controlled, propelling the rocket in the opposite direction. One of the key new technologies that SpaceX has developed is what they do with their booster rockets after launch. Uh, Normally what would happen is that booster then falls you know, back toward Earth and gets ditched into the ocean and it was never going to be used again. What SpaceX does and what they're going to do on this mission is fly the booster back to Earth so that the booster could be reused. Their whole point is space travel is so expensive. And if you throw away the booster, which is the most expensive part of the whole system, that's why it costs so much. It'd be like throwing away an airplane, you know, after you fly from New York to L.A., The good news is that SpaceX's, their Falcon 9 rocket, you know, it's getting near its 100th flight. So it's become more reliable. I mean, that said, it actually has blown up twice. Hmm. Once during a mission in 2015 when it was flying to the International Space Station. And then once in 2016 while it was being fueled ahead of an engine test. And since then, SpaceX has had multiple launches where they've been able to prove it out, that they've been flying repeatedly and they've been flying safely and they haven't had a problem with the rocket since then. However, uh, last year, with the very same spacecraft that flew to the International Space Station during that test flight without crews, they brought it back and they were testing uh, the abort engines on the ground And they had a problem with a valve, and the whole capsule exploded. Wow. Just boom. It was gone. So it just really underscores how dangerous and risky and difficult this is. I mean, let's not forget the space shuttle had two catastrophic failures, the Challenger in 1986, Columbia in 2003. And in those accidents, a total of 14 people lost their lives. So uh, it's a really, really risky endeavor. And if this launch goes well, do you think it's it's kind of the beginning of a new era of space travel and space exploration? Yes. I mean, if SpaceX can show that they can fly astronauts reliably, then this is a whole new paradigm with the way NASA gets people to space. And ultimately, you know, SpaceX's goal is not just to serve uh, NASA and fly NASA's astronauts, but actually written into the contract, NASA will allow SpaceX to fly private citizens to the International Space Station. And SpaceX is working, you know, with, you know, some people who obviously have got a lot of money, like a lot more than you or I have, who could afford trips like tourist trips to space and to go into orbit. You know, but if something goes wrong, you know, that is going to be a huge blow to NASA and SpaceX and raise all kinds of questions. But, you know, like you said, if it goes right, it sort of opens up lots of new possibilities that like years ago, a decade ago, nobody thought would have been possible. Chris Davenport covers the space industry for The Post. 
Between tour cancellations, lost creative gigs, and shrinking ad revenue, the COVID-19 crisis is making it clear that the system supporting creative people is broken. Patreon offers a better way. We help creators make up lost revenue and build a more sustainable income source by offering a monthly membership to their fans. In turn, fans get access to exclusive community and premium content and the chance to become active participants in the work they love. Check out Patreon.com now and help change the way art is valued. And now, one more thing about a different kind of Ramadan this year. From freelance reporter Hira Qureshi. So Ramadan is a month-long holiday where Muslims fast from sunrise to sunset. And so a typical day can consist of waking up at 4 a.m. to eat suhoor, which is the meal that starts the fast, and then fasting all day and then eating at sunset with iftar, which is the meal that breaks the fast. It's a month dedicated to worship and communal gatherings. People are having iftar parties. They're going to the mosque every night to pray. And they're even staying up all night with their friends just to hang out and spend the time between iftar and suhoor and fill those hours together. There's a big emphasis on togetherness, whether it's eating together or worshiping together. So not having that really sucked. So this guy, Zane Kazi, who is a Seattle-based Muslim photographer, he tweeted out that he wanted to see iftar pics just because everybody is at home and eating at home. And he said that if anybody liked the tweet, they would be added to a group chat. And so he created a group chat. And from the first night, it really took off. This group has popped off so well because all of us are kind of missing that experience and we're getting it in this virtual form in a group chat. Like we can't have a star together, but we're sharing. Essentially, our group is a virtual star. Community is important during this month because there's a certain sense of motivation and encouragement you get when you're fasting with a collective group. And so going to the mosque every night and, you know, eating together makes the fast easier. When you do things with people, it just makes things easier and more fun. This group is like already talking about keeping this group chat alive after Ramadan ends and then even after the pandemic ends. They've talked about how they'll be showing a lot more of restaurants in their cities and then also just showing more of the foods that they're making. A lot of them have started cooking more because of the chat too. I was just become like a wholesome little family, honestly. Like it's a really wholesome group. People post, um, so many different kinds of things like career paths, um, things they're going through in personal lives, um, obviously food related things like different recipes they're trying, different all this other stuff. And it's just grown. New people get keep getting added. And it's like a little mini family. Everyone's super supportive. Everyone's there. There's a little roasting going on. It's little jokes thrown here and there, but it's like a real mini family in there. And it's really cool. Just last night, they created um, an official name for the chat um, called Iftar Club, and they've created an official um, Twitter account and Instagram account. So they're making an extra effort to keep it alive. Hira Qureshi is a freelance reporter for The Post.
That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. On tomorrow's episode, an interview with Curtis Sittenfeld, author of the new novel Rodham, about a fictional alternate universe where Hillary Clinton never marries Bill. School children who knew that Hillary was running for president in many cases literally didn't know Bill Clinton existed. That concept sort of blew my mind and made me think, would the outcome of the election have been different if adults did not perceive Hillary and Bill as so interconnected? I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Patreon. If you're a podcaster, YouTuber, musician, writer, illustrator, if you're a creative person of any kind or simply love one, now is the time to check out Patreon.com. Now is the time to join the millions of fans and creators who are changing the way art is valued.